0: when I think about Jesus praying, usually the first image that comes into my mind is the powerful image of Jesus praying in the garden. It's so easy to visualize because the the Gospels are so descriptive about the, the setting and the scene and the agony that Jesus was feeling, the spiritual and emotional and physical exhaustion being grieved deeply and and painfully over what was happening and what he knew was about to take place. And so while that may be the one that comes to my mind the quickest because it's the most powerful image, I also think there's something striking about the other times that we see Jesus praying in Scripture. The times that seem very ordinary, when Jesus would just get up early in the morning or would retreat off to a distant place after a time of ministry and teaching, when he would separate and just find himself some time to be alone with God and pray. And as we look through the Gospels, we see that prayer was a part of the rhythm of Jesus' life. To Jesus, prayer was absolutely as natural as breathing. And when I see that, it reminds me that I don't pray nearly as often as I should that prayer doesn't come nearly as naturally to me as it should, that it's not a part of the rhythm of my life in the way that it should be. And maybe you're here and and that resonates with you. Maybe you feel like you don't pray as much or as often as you should, or your prayer life isn't as healthy and as vibrant as it should be. But as we've been looking through these teachings where Jesus is telling us what kingdom life looks like, We've seen over and over again that kingdom life is designed to follow and imitate its king. And as we see time and time again throughout scripture, we serve a king who is a praying king. And as Jesus lives out the example for our lives, we see exactly how important prayer should be. And in fact, we see Jesus give us a commandment and an invitation to come and pray. And so this morning, no matter where you find yourself, No matter what you may be feeling, no matter what hang-ups towards prayer you may be experiencing. Whether you have hesitancy about prayer because of guilt or shame. Or maybe you struggle to find time because of busyness and you feel guilty about that. Maybe it's just not a part of a regular practice of your life or something that you feel like you haven't ever really done well or learned to do well. No matter what the hang-up may be this morning. Today we're going to consider a commandment and a calling and an invitation to pray to our God, to pray to our Father in heaven, and to be people of prayer as we sit and learn about prayer at the feet of King Jesus. And so our passage this morning comes out of Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And this is the word of God. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we also thank you for the gift of prayer. Because we're reminded in this passage of scripture that you not only command us to pray, that you want us to pray that you allow us to come to you like children and pray to you as our Father. But God, you know that far too often I don't take advantage of that as I should, that most of us don't take advantage of that as we should. So Father, teach us about the beauty of prayer. Teach us to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Give us a passion and an excitement for prayer and remind us how amazing it is that we get to come boldly and freely into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, of the creator of the universe and speak to you as children speak to their parents. So God, we come to you in prayer asking that you teach us to pray. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Right off the bat here is Jesus teaches us about prayer. We see the first thing that we should do is to pray like Jesus. Very simply, very plainly, we need to learn to pray like Jesus. And this passage starts with a very powerful image again. One of these times where Jesus prays. And it says that he just simply was praying off in a certain place, and while he was, his disciples were waiting. And now this wouldn't have been a scene that was unfamiliar to the disciples. They would have seen Jesus pray on many different occasions because it was so much a part of the rhythm and the fabric of who he was, and it was so much a part of his life. But for some reason, this particular time was different. And the disciples, at least from the way that this is painted, were just waiting around Jesus like a waiter in a restaurant when you're saying the blessing. And they don't want to jump in, but they don't want to interrupt, but they got your food, and so they hang out around the table. Probably like that. And so the disciples were standing around waiting on Jesus to finish. And as soon as they did, they come to him with a question. It says when he's praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, it's important to remember about Jesus' disciples that these guys, they weren't pagans. They weren't non-believers. They weren't non-religious people. These were men who would have grown up in a religious context. These were Jewish men who would have been taught how to pray from a very early age. They would have been taught the scriptures from a very early age. They weren't coming into this blind. And so when they asked Jesus to teach them to pray, they're clearly asking something different than just give us the basic understanding of what it means to pray. But they say, we want, because we're your disciples, we want you to teach us to pray the same way that John taught his disciples to pray. We want you to teach us to pray like you. In fact, a really clear picture of this, they might have even been saying, Jesus, just give us a prayer to pray. Because as we've seen, they started to recognize that something was different. That something about Jesus was different. We're starting to see them confess their faith that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised. They're seeing the miracles and they're hearing the teachings and they know that something is about to come to a head. They realize that they were a part of at least some part of a beginning of a new kingdom, that they were the part of a new people. And because of that, they wanted a new prayer. And so they said, Jesus, you give us a prayer. You give us the new prayer to pray. You teach us to pray as people who follow after you. We're not content with something generic. We're not content with something that we've grown up with. But we know that you're changing everything. And so we want a prayer that reflects that. We want to learn to pray like your disciples. Last week, as we were talking about community, we looked at the importance of not coming to Jesus to show off our community, but to come to Jesus to learn how to live in community. That we don't want to simply come and look at, say to Jesus, look at all these things we're already doing and hope that he gives the stamp of approval. We want to come to the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, we need you to teach us how to live in community the way that you have designed us to live in community. And in the same way, when it comes to prayer, we need to be very cautious To not give in to the temptation to just throw our prayers at Jesus and hope they stick. But instead, to come to Jesus and say, because we're your followers, because we're your children, because we're your disciples, we want you to teach us how to pray. And when Jesus does, it's, of course, beautiful and perfect. Because in verse 2, he says, he looks at him and says, when you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. As we've seen, life in the kingdom requires the whole of a person. That kingdom life, that following Jesus, isn't simply about holding to a certain set of beliefs. It's not simply about participating in religious rituals. It's not just about doing good and acting socially, but it's about the whole of our lives from the inside out. To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love Jesus with all we have. And then not only to believe in Jesus, but to see that belief push us into action and to do the work that we're called to do. And so, of course, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, the prayer that Jesus gives us to pray is a holistic prayer that covers every aspect of our lives and that shapes us from the inside out when we pray it. He begins by teaching us to pray to our Father, and the very first thing that we should be praying for is that the name of God would be lifted up, that the name of God would be glorified. And so Jesus reminds us right there, that God's fame, that God's message going out into the world, that God's glory is the most important and the most central part of our lives in everything that we do. The prayer reminds us of our kingdom, to, of our, excuse me, of our mission to go out and to spread the news of the kingdom, to see God's kingdom done on earth as it is in heaven, as Matthew's version of the prayer teaches us. He pray, teaches us to pray for our physical needs, that we should pray that our our daily bread would be provided for us and that we put our hands and trust in the Father who gives us what we need. He teaches us to pray for our spiritual needs, asking God to forgive us of our debts as we go out and we do the work of the kingdom by forgiving those who are indebted to us. And then he tells us to ask God to protect us from temptation to keep us from falling into sin so that we can continually go out and do what we're called to do. In this very short prayer, Jesus reminds us that that kingdom commandment in our life is complete and total. And so our prayer life should reflect that. And the way that we pray should reflect that. Even the things that we say in the midst of our prayers should reflect that as well. And so as Jesus gives this prayer that we can pray verbatim or we can use as a model to structure our prayers around or both, we have this invitation to come to God and to pray freely and often, but we're reminded that most importantly, we should allow the life and the teaching of Jesus to shape our prayer life and to draw us close to him. To not be so arrogant or prideful to think that we're going to come and impress God with our prayers. Just like Matthew teaches before he leads into the Lord's Prayer, he says you have these these Pharisees that think they're going to be able to say all these amazing things and these, these pagans who believe that they can pray all these big words and somehow impress or incline the ear of God more. And so they're trying to do it their way, but it's not the way that you're supposed to pray. Instead, pray like this. Instead, pray like members of the kingdom. Instead, pray like I'm teaching you to pray. And this takes so much of the pressure off. Because it's not about us and it's not about our ideas or trying to move the heart of God with something strange or foreign. But Jesus teaches us verbatim how we should be praying in the midst of our lives. And so we need to be praying like Jesus prays and like Jesus teaches us to pray. We also see here that we have a calling to pray persistently. The story of Jacob wrestling with God is one that, that always, I just, I pondered a lot. I'm not sure that I've ever grasped the fullness of what that story means. It would be easy to throw in a pun here, a pun here about wrestling with this particular passage, which I was inclined to do, but then I just also kind of did because I just love puns. And no, it wasn't delivered smoothly, and yes, I might have given it away, but you should enjoy that pun as well because puns are delightful. But this this particular story is a really difficult one for me because it makes me uncomfortable. Because in this story, you have the angel of the Lord, or God himself, appearing before Jacob, and Jacob grabs a hold of God. Whatever that means and however that looks, Jacob grabs a hold of God, and they wrestle. And he says, I am not gonna let you go until you give me a blessing. And then God breaks his hip, which sounds horridly painful, and then he blesses him. And we see this picture of persistence in the life of Jacob. And all through the Old Testament, Especially in in the New Testament as well, but especially in reference to prayer and petitioning God, this idea of persistence is not only recorded, but it seems to be celebrated throughout Scripture. This idea of coming to God over and over and over again and not relenting. And that makes me deeply uncomfortable because that is not part of the fabric of who I am. That kind of persistence to me feels icky and annoying, and it makes me self-conscious and difficult for me to do. I'm the guy that I don't want to text you more than once unless I really have to, and if I do, if I ever text you twice or call you twice and you haven't returned it, just know that I want to throw up while it's happening constantly. If I have to ask someone something again, or if I have to remind somebody at a store, if I have to go and bother someone a second time, it gives me the dry heavies, and I don't feel good, and it makes me very deeply uncomfortable because I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be annoying. I don't want to be persistent. And even if it's something that's necessary or important, I just, I don't like it. And in verse 5 through 8, I think this is why. Jesus gives an example here that just makes me think, yeah, that's why I don't want to do that. He says, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight, again, we're already off to a bad start, and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. (laughs) It's it's midnight, man. Like, don't eat bread at midnight. That seems like it's just a lot of carbs. It's going to sit really heavy. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Let him go to bed. And he will answer from within the appropriate answer, mind you, do not bother me, for the door is now shut, which is... A thing that I've tried to say to my children on many occasions. And my children are with me in bed and I cannot give up and give you anything. Yes, that is the exact appropriate response to this. And if you come to my house at midnight and knock on my door, that might be my exact speech because that's probably what my house looks like. Because honestly, my children don't like to not be in our bed and they just surprise us like little ninjas. And they just sneak in and slide in at who knows what time of night and they just appear like little... I don't know. It's amazing how quiet and yet disruptive they can be. And so if you were to rap, tap, tap on my door that late, yes, I will say, do not bother me, for the door is shut and my children are asleep. And if you wake them, you take them because they are not pleasant once they wake up. But it keeps going. And Jesus says, and again, dead on here, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yeah, because of his impudence or his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You see, at midnight, this guy is not getting out of his bed to give his friend bread because they're friends. Because at midnight, they're not friends anymore. But if he keeps over and over again, and those children are asleep in bed, and you know that the only thing that's going to shut this former friend up is if you give them some bread, you're going to get up and you're going to give them bread. And I know this is true because I have children. And this is the way that children operate. Because you know them. I have two little girls, and they are very cute. And sometimes I get the question a lot, how do you ever say no to them because they're so cute? But I'm with them all the time. I know how cute they are. I am immune to their cuteness. And so when they want something, they start with cuteness, and they do the puss in boots, big eyes thing. And it's like I have no, it doesn't do anything. And I can look at them in their cute little big eyes and say, no. (laughs) And it costs me nothing. But then what happens is those eyes change to eyes of fiery determination. And they just ask and ask and ask and ask. And nothing that I say will make them stop asking. And so there's sometimes when what I give them is not out of love and adoration, even though I often love to get them gifts of love and adoration, sometimes I give them things because, oh, please stop talking. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This persistence drives the person that's in their house, in their bed, not wanting to get up, to get up and to do something for their neighbor. And in the same way, that's what happens with children. And remember, Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven, meaning that we're coming to God as children, and children don't ask nicely very often. They ask persistently. They are all tiny little Jacobs clinging to your legs saying, I shall not let you go until you bless me. And that's how Jesus is teaching us to pray. The Old Testament saints, Jesus, even Paul, understood that they had a total dependence on God that led them to persistence in their prayer. Paul has this thorn in his side, whatever that was, whether it was something physical or emotional or spiritual, there was something causing Paul pain. And he said, I went to the Lord three different times asking God to remove it from me. And every time God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. But that didn't stop Paul from going and asking. And if we see Jesus as King, and if we recognize that God is totally and completely sovereign, able to do anything he wants, the way we pray should reflect that. And part of that is total dependence, but part of that is persistence, where we come to God saying, I know that you can do this. I need you to do this, and I'm going to come to you as many times as necessary. Jesus is commanding us here to make our petitions persistent. That is very hard to say back to back. To make our prayers persistent and constant. And that means that we have to let go of this fear that we are going to somehow bother or inconvenience God. Because in all of Jesus' parables like this one, he's reminding us that this is what it looks like when imperfect people react in these relationships. But when God is a part of this relationship, that imperfect is taken away. And so Jesus says, if a neighbor who is tired is going to get up just out of impulse to make this stop, imagine how God is going to respond, who is compassionate and kind and caring and doesn't need to rest. Our persistence isn't going to bother God or put God out, but he wants us to come to him constantly with our needs and even boldly with our needs. And he continues on in verse nine with the same mentality saying, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open." He's saying, don't just come persistently, but come with the whole totality of who you are. Ask me for the things that you need. Use your words and talk to me because you have that ability to come into my presence and pray to me. But seek after me. Look for me. Go where I'm going and try to move and find where I'm leading you. Knock on these doors and see if I open them. And when I do, be ready to walk through there. Seek me persistently with your heart, soul, mind, and strength with everything that you have. We have complete and total freedom to do that. And in these two simple passages of scripture, Jesus takes away every excuse that we have for not going to God in prayer. We're not going to bother him. We're not going to inconvenience him. We're not going to ask something that's impossible of him. We're not going to be too beaten up or broken down or too wrong time, wrong place to come to God. He says, come to me anytime. Come to me every time. Come to me often. Come to me over and over again with persistence, knowing that I am able to do what you need. And so we should pray like Jesus, and we should pray persistently. And then finally here we see that we should pray with total trust. When you're talking to somebody and you're about to ask a question, the recipient of that question tends to change how it's asked. You ask different people different questions in different ways. And so when Jesus starts off here telling us that we are praying to our Father, or as Matthew records it, our Heavenly Father, our Father who is in heaven, that has to change the way that we pray. That has to change the way that we make our requests known to God, because we're reminded here that we are praying to a God who has the power of the king of the universe. We're praying to a God who has the power to create universes out of nothing by the power of his word alone, but we are also praying to a God who has the heart of a perfect, good, and loving Father. And so in another little parable here, Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And that question is obviously absurd, intentionally absurd. Jesus says, all of you here that are fathers, if your child comes to you and asks for an egg, it would be cruel at best, abusive at worst, to instead give them a scorpion because scorpions are weird and creepy and unpredictable. I don't really know what they can do. I haven't been stung by one. I don't really know. I, can they kill you? Maybe. I don't know. Can they fly? I don't really know what scorpions do. They make me very uncomfortable, but that would be a horrible thing to do to your child, and it, you don't have to read a parenting book for that, right? You don't have to go to the conferences for, for how to not give your child a scorpion when they want an egg, And so Jesus is saying, this is really basic stuff here. None of you would do that. All of you know on a basic level how to care for the most primitive needs that your child has. Now imagine God. Now imagine the God who knows you more intimately and more perfectly than you could ever imagine. If you fathers, if you parents who are just wrecked with sin and shame and brokenness can handle these basic day-to-day things, then the God who is above all and beyond all and perfect and holy and kind and just and gracious, he is going to care for you in a way that is right, in a way that is perfect, in a way that is exactly what needs to be done. But a lot of times we approach God with, uncertainty, we approach God with doubt, and we approach God with mistrust. And why wouldn't we? Because all of us can think of times when we've asked something of someone and they've not done it. They've not done it well. They've told us they would do it and they wouldn't do it at all, or they've told us no. We've all had times when we've relied on someone, even someone close to us, but we've been let down. We've had times when we've trusted someone with our vulnerability and they've taken advantage of it and used it for their own gain. We've all had these things take place in our life. And so it makes sense that when we would go to God, we would expect that same thing to happen because we often forget exactly who God is. But Jesus is saying, focus here. This is your father who is in heaven how much more will the heavenly father give to those who were in need? This is a God who loves us enough that he showed his love for us by giving his one and only son to, as a sacrifice on our behalf, a God willing to give everything for us. And so Jesus is saying, do you really think that that's a one-time affection? Do you really think that God only cares for you once in a moment, or that God only has room in his heart for one or two of you, or for maybe one moment in your life? This is a God who has enough love to go around, and that's one of those things that you learn as a parent. There's always that fear when you have one kid, and you love them a lot, and then you find out that another one's coming along, and you think, "Uh uh-oh, I got all this love for this one, and how am I ever going to love the other the same? And what's amazing, what you find out, is that love is not a finite resource. And when it comes to God, love is certainly not a finite resource. In fact, Paul in Ephesians tells us that he lavishes his love on us, that he has so much love that not only can he give all of us every bit of love that we need, but he can pour on us far more than we could ever possibly dream or imagine. And so we have to remember when we come to God that we come to a father who loves us and who is intimately concerned about us. That he cares about every single detail of our lives. But we treat God with superstition. Like God is some sort of divine monkey's paw that if we ask the question in the wrong way, then we're going to get some sort of horrible response that takes place. That if I ask God to help me, then maybe he's going to hurt somebody else. Or if I ask God this in the wrong way or with the wrong heart, then he's going to snatch it away and, and give me something negative in return. But that's not the God that we serve. He's not a gotcha God that's waiting for us to mess up so that he can punish us. But he is a God who gives us what we need. Now, he doesn't always give us what we expect. But always what we need. I know I've quoted this before. But Tim Keller says that God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knows. And so, yes, sometimes the answer to our prayers may be no, or maybe that's not what you need, or maybe here's this instead. And maybe we'll have to to grasp with that and reconcile that and to trust through those times. But God is always going to give us what we need in the time that we need it. And he is certainly not going to ever just pull the rug out from under us just because, because that's not the kind of God he is. This is why in Matthew's prayer, he says to pray that God would, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that because we can trust the heart of the Father. That no matter what's going on, that God knows more than we know. And that also God cares more than we care. And God loves more than we love. And so we can trust that whatever happens, whatever is done in God's will, it's not only going to be what's best for Him, but it will be what is best for us as well. And so we have this ability to come broken and vulnerable and honest with God trusting in His character and His nature, knowing that if we ask for an egg, He's not going to give us a scorpion. That He's not going to punish us for asking too many times or asking from a place of total vulnerability. He's not going to take our vulnerability and use it against us, but we have a God who deals gently with us. And so because of that, we can come asking and seeking and knocking. We can come persistently and consistently because God can handle it. In fact, even more than that, God expects it and God commands it of us. And so we can come boldly to the throne of grace and make our requests known to our God because we have a Father who loves us more than anyone else ever could, who cares about us more than anyone else ever could, who knows our needs even more than we know them. And so as kingdom people... We need to prepare and to pray to be a people of wild and passionate and constant prayer. And we can start today. And prayer is certainly one of those spiritual disciplines that it might not come naturally at first. It might be something where we start small. But thankfully, if you don't know what to pray, we've got one right here starting with just what Jesus taught us to pray and making that prayer a regular part of our lives, but then asking God to give us a passion to talk to him, to remember that we don't have to have our guard up or any sort of formality, but we can come to God as children, clinging to him, persistent and annoying and messy and broken, but he loves us just like that. And so let's commit today to be a people of prayer. But also, let's commit today to be a church of prayer. And as we were talking about community last week and some of the opportunities that we have coming up in our city and in our neighborhood, we don't want to do this on our own. And the mission that we believe that God has given us to go out and to make disciples in our community and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to live out that kind of messy and sometimes broken community that we saw put on display through the parable of the Good Samaritan last week, we need help. In fact, we don't need help. We need God to do the work for us and through us. And so we need to be people of prayer. And as a church, we need to be coming to God persistently making these requests known over and over and over again. When we meet together in community groups, when we go out and we work together and serve and love our community, we need to be a people of prayer, asking God to open the doors so that we can begin to build relationships, to put the people in front of us that we can begin to love and to serve. God has already been opening so many doors in in some of the surrounding neighborhoods and some of the opportunities that we're going to have to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so we need to pray that God would give us the constant passion that when he opens those doors to step through them and to follow wherever he leads. We need to pray that God would continue to strengthen our group to help us to love one another as he loves us and to be able to to know one another and to pray for one another and to invest in one another's lives, but then not to be satisfied with just that right here, but to take that love and affection for one another and put it on display out in the city and in the community and to share that love with other people as well. We want to pray that God would add people to our number, that we would see more people come to be a part of our church. That we would see people know the gospel and be baptized and we would see that new life. And we would love to see that every week. That people are getting baptized in our church every single week. We need to pray that God would continue to provide financially for our church. We're a little church and we're doing a different kind of ministry. And so we have to trust God in our finances and ask God to provide for our church financially. There are so many things that we can be praying for God over and over and over about. And I'll confess, there are times when I'll pray for something this week and something the next week and something the next week, but we need to be going to God with these kind of prayer requests for our church every single day and to know that we're not bothering God or that we're not wearing God out. But if we are passionate about the mission and the vision that he's given us as a church, then we need to make that obvious through the way that we pray. And what's amazing about that is the more that we come to God with these requests, the deeper he is going to allow our passion to grow the stronger he is going to make our mission very clear. The more opportunities he's going to give us the ability to see and he's going to strengthen us and teach teach us through that and to give us that power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about there to go out and to do what we're called to do. And it all begins with a simple invitation to come to God as children and pray. And so let's be faithful both in our individual lives and as a church to take him up on that commandment. And to take advantage of that, to use it as often and as as regular as we possibly can, without fear, without shame, without guilt, without hesitation, without a plan B. To go to God and to trust in Him in all that we do.